And what we witness right now with COVID-19 is an ideological horseshoe where the extremes are closer to each other than ever before, where suddenly a person who does not believe in the existence of the Federal Republic of Germany can stand on the same scene as a person who believes that vaccines are an evil tool in the hands of the global elites in order to bring about the world government. Hi, this is Eric Paglia from the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 24 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. Been doing this podcast for about one year and... Um, I've managed to stay COVID-free for that year, looks like. And uh, my co-host in this podcast, Mark Vandenbosch, he also stayed COVID-free for about a year. But now? Yeah, <laughs> it was about time for, for one of us to get it. And uh, Mark, sad to say that you do have coronavirus. Uh, calling in from a, um, a safe location. And uh, we're going to hear a bit about your experience with that and uh, about uh, the coronavirus and the management of this uh, worldwide crisis. And a little bit later on in the episode, we'll have an interview with our uh, our expert of the episode, Professor Andreas Önerfersch, Professor of Intellectual History at Uppsala University. We're not going to talk about intellectual history per se. We're actually going to talk about conspiracy theories. That's one of the uh, specialties that Andreas has been pursuing uh, even before the coronavirus. And uh, he's going to apply that uh, knowledge and the uh, additional research he's done to talk about conspiracies surrounding COVID-19. So that's going to be a lot of fun to uh, to talk to Andreas. So Mark, tell us about how you're feeling and um, what happened. I think I'm pretty fortunate. I'm one of those who has not been overly impacted by this, though I certainly feel it. Feel a bit congestion in my chest, a dry cough. Uh, I had some major headaches, uh, but overall, it's been basically just a really bad cold so far. So I think, I'm, as I said, one of the lucky ones. But the interesting thing with this uh, Corona is, is, of course, uh, very real, but also somewhat abstract unless you're hit by it yourself. I mean, look around; everything is normal outside. Uh, you know, people are going about their business, uh, living their lives. Uh, some people still seem to maintain that Corona is a hoax of some kind. Uh, that it's not really that bad. Uh, it's interesting. Then when you get hit yourself, when you get that confirmation, because what happened in my case is uh, I thought I was suffering from allergies that time of year here in Sweden where the allergies start to kick in. But then I started to feel a lot of pain in my back. It was kind of weird. Why Why do allergies trigger pain in my back? Yeah. It just wouldn't go away after, after two or three days. Then I decided just to be on the safe side and I ordered a test. My wife laughed at me. <laughs> <laughs> she said, ah, come on, it's just allergies. But, you know, I was feeling weird. I was just off my game. It was just something a little odd. So actually, I stayed in. I was supposed to um, do some things. I coach kid teams uh, for, for judo and football. But I decided to cancel that and err on the on the safe side of things. And then I started feeling a little bit worse. And then I got the result of my test. And as I opened it, there it was. Indeed, PCR test confirms it. What was your reaction? Was it, was it fear? Well, you know, was it surprise? I mean... I wasn't surprised, actually. It was validation because I knew at this point that this was weird. It wasn't just allergies. There was something else going on. And it wasn't either a standard cold because it feels stranger than that. And then, of course, everybody at home freaked out. And then we had to make sure that we hadn't impacted others. We, we tracked back our final steps of the last few days to make sure that we you know, haven't spread this onwards, called a couple of people to let them know. And now we're stuck inside the whole family for a week. And the family is going to get tested as well tomorrow. They have to wait a little bit, otherwise they'll have to take uh, two tests. 
And uh, it's it's a major pain in the butt, but in my case, it appears to be nothing more than just a, a major inconvenience. Uh, but yet, I, I do understand that uh, some people are scared of this, and I have actually two more people that I know in my uh, immediate surroundings, if you will, that have been hospitalized because of this. Young people, a woman who was 42, uh, hospitalized, uh, another colleague, I think she's even younger than that from work. Most get away with it pretty uh, with minor discomfort, which appears to be my case. And as I said, I'm, I feel fortunate for that. But this is very real. And on that subject, these numbers are so staggering that they almost lose significance. I remember when the first fatality in Sweden hit, everybody flipped out. Uh, now in Sweden, we're around, I think, 12,000. It doesn't seem to be as big of a deal somehow. The daily numbers don't seem to have the same impact as they used to. In Brazil now, I mean, it's completely out of control, rampant. And that country's uh, health system is complete, completely overwhelmed now. And of course, the United States, you know, which uh, also is a country that uh, perhaps did not take this seriously enough in the beginning, uh, they're nearing 600,000 fatalities. Actually, in America, Corona is the third leading death cause in 2020. Unbelievable. There was an increase in morbidity last year in the United States of close to 16% directly related to Corona. So this is real stuff. And yet, there's some people out there are still denying it, calling it a hoax, calling it, you know, a way of government of gaining control. They That's don't exactly. want to get vaccinated. That's exactly what uh, we're going to be talking about uh, later on in the podcast with Andreas uh, about the uh, the various uh, conspiracy theories around that. And you mentioned vaccinations there, Mark. That is actually one area where there there is also enough schism uh, that's opened up quite dramatically, actually, between the different uh, countries. Here in Europe, uh, the uh, vaccination rate is quite low still, but in places like the United States, it's actually uh, ramped up quite a bit. I think it's something like three times more people have been per capita have been vaccinated in the United States than in, or even more than that, even three, four times more in the United States than in uh, places in Europe, such as here in Sweden, which is still, I think, of quite a quite a low number of people have been vaccinated in this country. It's going very, very slowly here. It's true. They're just now announced that people uh, over the age of, I think, 70 are now able to make appointments for vaccination, just starting now. So obviously, it's a very, very slow process. I agree with you. The geopolitics, let's say, of the vaccine is uh, something that I, I do want to um, address uh, on one of our future episodes, uh, perhaps with an expert on the topic, to talk about how the distribution of the vaccine uh, is um, quite a bit dependent upon where you are in the world, your manufacturing capacities, the home countries of different uh, vaccine makers. And of course, there's also the, the bit of the wild card is the, the Russian Sputnik vaccine, which... I think that most people in Europe would rather not take, but some countries have actually um, opened up to this. I think Hungary is using it. I think maybe Slovakia, although I think there's some controversy there in Slovakia. And now even Austria is now also um, looking at uh, the Sputnik vaccine because they just haven't um, managed the process so well enough. In Latin America, where some countries that have traditionally been allies of the United States have such a dire need for the vaccine that they've turned towards Russia. And I think the biggest example is Colombia. They've called all in on Sputnik. And Colombia has been a traditional uh, ally of the United States in the past. So this will provide, of course, Russia. And I think China is doing the same thing in Africa, uh, sort of uh, getting a lot of goodwill by uh, pumping out this vaccine to potential geopolitical uh, alliances in the future. One of the many uh, dimensions of this pandemic that we've uh, covered here on this program over the past year, this is episode 24. Just over a year ago, we uh, started this and we are still going. Um, 
maybe not strong. We, one of our one of our two hosts here has uh, come down with this thing, but I think that uh, you will, uh, let's say, come out of this stronger on the other side. You can speak with a different kind of authority about the pandemic and the virus uh, after this experience you're going through right now, Mark. But you know, one of the other interesting things and something I you know think about as well, even though I seem to be uh, doing okay, I've had this for about six days now, is that there's been an increased evidence that there's many people who are impacted by this over a long period of time. Talking about people who are still showing symptoms a year after having been diagnosed with COVID. As a matter of fact, uh, in Sweden, but I realize that this is happening throughout the world, there's a, a new uh, health facility being opened up for what they call long-term COVID patients, even though they've gotten over some of the uh, mean uh, symptoms uh, of the disease, they're still not fully recovered. And uh, the medical community is, is paying more attention to that to see how we can mitigate the effects long term. And what you're actually saying here is uh, the, the mystery factor around this virus that we still, after a year, don't know a lot about. And there's still questions about the origins and, uh, and these different uh, mutations and things like that. And uh, the trajectory of this, even with the vaccine, whether these various vaccines will be uh, effective on the, the UK variant, the Brazilian variant, South Africa, what have you. There's another aspect to this, which is also odd for me, but, you know, it makes plenty of sense. And there was a lot of fanfare uh, yesterday. Uh, some of, I think one of the headlines uh, worldwide was uh, Pfizer can now say with a fair amount of certainty that their vaccine is valid more than six months, which for me is nuts, but it's true. They haven't been able to test this. My point being here is that the people getting vaccinated today may have to get vaccinated again in six to eight months and get yeah. booster shots. Yeah. We don't even know how long this immunity provided by vaccine is going to hold up, or people with antibodies. We don't know either how long they are immune to the disease. There's plenty left to learn. Certainly more podcast episodes to do on this topic with many different variations uh, on uh, this theme of the uh, pandemic and the management of this pandemic and this story, this this kind of amazing unfolding story that uh, we are living through, the story of a lifetime. All right, Mark, well, thanks very much for um, rising to the occasion out of your, your COVID sickbed and uh, joining us here on the podcast, uh, co-hosting today, the episode number 20. <coughs> There you go. So thank you for the sound effects there. So let's move on now to our guest. Uh, he's a professor of intellectual history at uh, Uppsala University, Andreas Ernefersch, specialist in conspiracy theories, here on Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic. When we talk about conspiracy theory, we need to make a distinction with what we would call to have a theory about a conspiracy. Uh, now, that sounds a bit uh, counterintuitive, but I'm going to explain what I mean by that. So if you have a theory about a conspiracy, you most likely have a theory about somebody who is planning um, crime together with somebody else. And that is perfectly fine and perfectly legitimate because you might have this theory about people who in the dark are plotting against uh, you and, and it might turn out that this is true. For instance, Watergate or the Italian Lodge P2 and, and other forms of real conspiracies that have happened. Now, a conspiracy theory in, in opposition to that is a theory that only partly is about to exactly find out what has happened, but also blends into the argument moral statements, for instance, about the... Um, evil uh, character of the people who are supposed to perpetrate that crime. They are also placing the, these actions within a dualist frame of explanation. So 
the world is divided in two spheres of uh, evil and good, and uh, other moral judgments such as the uh, apocalypse that will uh, follow if we don't stop these people from conspiring against us. I mean, the main distinction is that while a theory about the conspiracy still is made on the ground of uh, verifiable data, the conspiracy theory very quickly leaves both the rules of logical reasoning and the rules of uh, using data in any scientific or uh, or other argument, and also blends it then with, with these moral statements and narrative frames that makes it very close to a religious uh, explanation rather than than some truth statements. I think the religious comparison is quite interesting, as it was one of the questions I had planned. In this very secular world, perhaps, that uh, people are searching for, for meaning, bigger meaning and explanations, and uh, maybe in some ways a rejection of, of randomness that, 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 that a, uh, a more technocratic scientific world might uh, might entail. Could that perhaps be some of the explanation why there's so many conspiracy theories uh, in this day and age, especially in this era of coronavirus, which is the biggest event in, in, in our lives and seems to almost defy randomness as something this big could just kind of emerge and happen on its own? Yes, exactly. I mean, those uh, researching conspiracy theories, I was part of a European network doing that over the last five years say that the conspiracy theory as an explanation for major political events emerged in connection with the French Revolution. Um, and that is interesting in several regards, because that is the point in time when our modern political ideologies uh, were formed, socialism, liberalism, conservatism, and where people, because of the Enlightenment and because of the revolution, more and more were leaving religious explanations of human events behind. So the conspiracy theory can also be interpreted as a substitute religious explanation of large events. And we are talking about uh, conspiracy theories more and more about uh, like uh, conspiracy myths that are creating meaning-making narratives about the world. Now, if you think about a conspiracy theory like a conspiracy myth that uh, fulfills a role as a religious substitute, so to speak, uh, it is no wonder that a big event like COVID-19 uh, has attracted so much imagination. And if I can continue on the topic of uh, specific conspiracy theories uh, surrounding COVID-19, those fall largely into six different categories the first is about the origin of the virus, the second about the dissemination of the virus, the third about who is getting sick and who dies about the virus, uh, the fourth is about what political and public health countermeasures are decided upon, and the fifth is specifically of the, about vaccines, and the sixth is uh, all these meta-theories. Why does it happen right now? Who is behind all this? That gives us some definitely some uh, some fodder for discussion here, Andreas. Uh, six different uh, variants of this, not of the virus, but of the of the theory behind the virus. And you also mentioned narratives. Narratives is another one of these buzzwords these days. That all these competing narratives, yes. and it's it's like a battleground of narratives these days. Perhaps you could um, exactly. you could you could drill down into some of these six because I think that would be kind of a fascinating way to sort of get into sort of the the depths of the uh, coronavirus uh, conspiracy universe. Yeah, sure, of course. 
So when it comes to the the origin of the coronavirus, one very favorite uh, conspiracy theory is that about the China virus, so that China intentionally uh, released the virus. And of course, if you look at the people who have been using this theory, they are kind of um, phasing it into another conspiratorial uh, narrative that has been around, namely that about climate change is a hoax by the Chinese to bring down the American economy. So basically, now you have the same uh, figure of thought, but you're just putting in COVID-19 is a hoax or is intentionally released to bring down the American economy slash to attack Donald Trump in the presidential elections. That conspiracy theory we saw circulating quite a lot uh, during the last year. But then there's the reversal of that theory, which is... uh, the USA virus, and that is exactly about the opposite, uh, blaming the United States for having intentionally released the virus as a bioweapon against China. And that conspiracy theory, of course, fuels itself of having been uh, formulated already 30 years, 40 years ago or so in connection with the HIV virus and the AIDS uh, pandemic. Uh, where America was accused by the KGB of having intentionally released the virus and tested it on the African population. So these are two typical conspiracy theories circulating about the origin. It's also very geopolitical, right, that these the different major state actors would yeah. have, a, have a stake in, in sort of spreading information or disinformation to undermine opponents, to create conflicts inside of societies like the HIV example that you mentioned there, and, and also to maybe to, to deflect blame or to deflect inquiry on certain uh, other narratives. So these these are perhaps conspiracy theories, but I mean, there is also a legitimate search for a real explanation, and that is what is supposedly supposed to happen, whether it's done by the WHO Somewhere there's an explanation. Something did happen, right? And and how do you separate what could be a conspiracy theory versus what is actually some truthful uh, investigation yeah. into the origins of this virus? Yeah, exactly. And that comes back to the point about making a distinction about the theory of conspiracy or a conspiracy theory that in the very moment when you place blame, when you put this into a dualist narrative where you try to explain who is good and evil. If you see it as a civilizational narrative that tells you soon our civilization will be over and the global elites are playing with our lives, that is not any longer a search for the truth or to establish facts that might be true, but that is a conspiracy myth. And that is very important to make that distinction because, of course, the WHO does investigate the origin of the virus, rightly so, And of course, they did not rule out that the virus might have escaped from this uh, lab in Wuhan. And we cannot rule that out, that possibility, of course. But that doesn't mean that we need to see the Chinese government as some kind of tool in the hands of the eternal uh, dualism between good and evil that will bring us close to the collapse of humanity. That is my point. When it comes to dissemination, there are some interesting varieties around. One is about to shift blame for the dissemination of un, on underprivileged groups. So what we have seen in the European uh, New Rights uh, recently is that blame about the dissemination of the virus has been placed on migrants. And this is, of course, to fuse a COVID-19 conspiracy theory with an anti-refugee conspiracy theories about 
the great replacement and placing blame on the people who are coming to Europe as asylum seekers. The more science fiction variety about the spread of the virus is, of course, the one that uh, blames uh, the 5G technology of it. And there are different varieties of it. One is that the 5G actively spreads uh, the coronavirus or that it uh, uh, makes our bodies uh, weaker and that we therefore are um, attacked by the coronavirus because of that technique. And that more science fiction-like theory has, again, there was an older theory about these people who are against mobile uh, radiation or very active in the area of light pollution and uh, electronic uh, pollution and uh, electronic allergy and, and things like that. So they could perfectly uh, tie into that theory about the 5G having a connection with the dissemination of the coronavirus. Scientifically, of course, we need to uh, investigate the impact of mobile radiation upon human bodies. It, that is not only necessary, I mean, we, we have to do it. It's like our duty, because every new technology can have disadvantages. That is not the problem. The problem is in the very moment when you believe that a virus can be spread by mobile radiation, that crosses the borders to science fiction. <laughs> Just to make that distinction clear. Uh, so, yeah, when it comes to, to the issue of who is getting sick and who dies from the virus, these uh, themes are circulating in, in different kinds of conspiratorial narratives. One is, of course, again, to shift blame on groups that uh, bring so-called comorbidity into the picture. So they have underlying conditions. And we have seen how, for instance, uh, BAME groups in, uh, in Britain, minorities in, in the United States have been uh, accused of having these underlying conditions because of lifestyle choices. Obesity, for instance, has been connected to a larger uh, morbidity uh, from COVID-19. And there you can see it's a kind of shift of blame. So, yeah, well, the ordinary healthy citizen does not have to worry. But these people, those who are getting more infected, those are to blame because they are uh, engaging in, in, in bad uh, lifestyle choices. And then when it comes to the mortality, so who dies from the virus, well, you have two positions, of course, both morbidity and mortality. Some reject the numbers uh, in general, but others say, for instance, like in the case of Sweden, it was an intended uh, geronticide or senicide because so many uh, older people died from the pandemic and the Swedish state let it happen uh, consciously or even uh, intentionally. And that would be the conspiratorial reading of a mortality, for instance. Can we um, perhaps could perhaps distinguish that? There? That's, a, that's another interesting point in sort of these, these blame mm. games. Um, I mean, there's, there was this Facebook group, right? Uh, this, this sort of secret Facebook group. Maybe. Yeah, here in Sweden that, um, that was very critical of the Swedish government's response. I, I don't know if they, they made allegations such as intentional uh, gentricide or whatever. Oh, the, yes. The, where, where does something like that fall in where, where you have established people, scientists and other you know, elites in some sense, are, are, are coming yes. up with ideas that are very critical of, of an established uh, uh, approach towards dealing with this, this uh, pandemic. Mm. Where would that fall under a conspiracy theory or is that a, just a conspiracy or is that just a theory? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and again, I would say that that uh, when it comes to an investigation of the causes of the high mortality rate, 
in old people's homes in Sweden, uh, we, of course, need to have an investigation of, of all available evidence. But only from the numbers jump to the conclusion that the Swedish state intentionally murders its older population and claim that the Swedish state can be drawn in front of the International Criminal Court because of uh, uh, breaches of human rights. That is where the conspiratorial part of it is kind of uh, um, showing uh, itself. Because the underlying narrative is that we cannot trust the state. The state uh, does not represent our interests. The state is after to harm its own citizens. And that is a conspiratorial meta-narrative about the deep state, uh, tying to what you, you were talking about previously about the paranoia, uh, where uh, societal trust and, and, and interpersonal trust is eroded, and where we assume that the state is a negative force in our lives, yeah. which is, of course, from, from a Swedish perspective, a... a, a I mean, very, very uncommon. So and very unsettling for this country, right? And uh, uncommon yes, for sure, yes. and unsettling for for uh, such a, for a society with so much uh, trust in, in authorities. But perhaps also, it, its intentionality is maybe um, it, it's a little more complicated than that in some sense. Uh, because if 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 you go back to the early days of of the pandemic here in Sweden, in particular, mm. there was a lot of talk about herd immunity as being the Swedish strategy, right? That was kind yeah. of, that was kind of the yeah. assumption that Sweden was pursuing a herd immunity, even though they wouldn't call it that. But there were some emails that showed that perhaps that was on the minds of the um, yeah, of sure. the authorities yeah. mm. that perhaps they were concealing that because they thought that was a legitimate, the best way to deal with it. So it wasn't an, an evil intention, perhaps, but they thought that this was the best and perhaps the only way to, to deal with a pandemic that um, that was already established inside the country and that protecting older people, that was certainly one one aspect of this, try to protect the older peoples, but in some ways that was, mm. that was a failure of this country. But the idea that to let it spread, perhaps, was not really that far off from what was underpinning the Swedish strategy. Well... Of course, that might be the case. But then again, I mean, frequently conspiracy theorists are, or conspiracy theorists are very good at amassing evidence, like an, an evidence in some kind of, I wouldn't say vulgar, but a very basic understanding of what facts are. Like if you amass a lot of data about, for instance, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about the, the, the ferry catastrophe of the MS Estonia in 1994, about the, the the technical details of a ferry in, in in a heavy storm or something like that, and these experts are, are giving you lots of data that you have to read through, and then you have to understand it must be a cover up. The ship was uh, hit by a Russian torpedo or whatever. But then, if you ask the same people of, about the intentions why it was covered up, it is only a matter of evil and good. Um, conspiracy theorists are very bad at providing you with some credible explanation uh, to moral intentions behind uh, certain actions. And what I mean with that is, is that conspiracy theory seems to imitate scientific reasoning, but it, it's very bad at even imitating sound moral reasoning that would try to stand the test of scientific inquiry. So, for instance, if we come back to the COVID-19 example, yeah, it might be the case that the herd immunity was a, a core of the Swedish uh, anti-corona strategy. Yeah, and if that is the case, people end up saying that is a very evil uh, strategy. 
So they are again interpreting something in terms of good and evil, which is a very simple way of you know analyzing the motives for people's actions and not looking at uh, perhaps but, what what might from from the decision maker standpoint might be looking at the greater good not just good and evil but the greater good that yes yeah. we're gonna have to suffer we're gonna have to we're gonna have to deal with quite a few casualties but we're in this this terrible situation and we don't see any mm. other better way out of it than to than to actually yes, pursue yes, this yes, this course and, of action exactly and, and exactly for instance you have uh, in, in public health you have not only the kind of medical determinants of health, but you also have to consider the social determinants of health. So it might be that there was some kind of advanced utilitarian reasoning behind uh, the Swedish strategy that lies in the area of public health and where people cannot grasp the complexity that lies in analyzing a pandemic from the position of both medical determinants of health and social determinants. And what that means is, for instance, to to make uh, an informed judgment between a total lockdown or a semi-lockdown or a Swedish strategy where we allow the spreading of the virus and uh, you know hope that the, our citizens are able to make the right decisions. Which brings me to the area of, of the, the political and the public health countermeasures, which of course are a particular focus of those people who have anti-corona uh, conspiracy theories because they see the uh, political measures as uh, the intention behind the to deal with COVID. With other words, if countries like Germany, England and Sweden are prohibiting at the moment uh, political manifestations and demonstrations, the conspiracy theorists believe that is the true intention behind why uh, they are taking these measures. It's not the public health concern. Uh, and that the public health authorities are complicit in that process. The next point was that about the vaccines. And of course, vaccine movement is is, is a huge one. It, it is by the WHO described as the one that poses one of the greatest public health risks on a global level. So conspiracy theories against vaccines have been around for a very long time. And now they, of course, have a wonderful occasion to um, attract new followers, particularly with this fanciful idea that the vaccines are containing a microchip so small it can be injected with a needle into your body and so smart it will place itself exactly in the brain where it has to be placed so that it can be used as a tool of mind control. I mean, I heard the first mentioning of the microchip theory expressed by a Swedish medium who lives in, in Central America. And she had an even more advanced theory that the chip actually will split up into two parts and block uh, your chakras in your body so that your body energy will be compromised. That was maybe in March or April 2020. And then very soon after, Bill Gates uh, turned up as the main culprit behind uh, that microchipping theory. If we get back to the vaccines, um, uh, Andreas, so uh, where where is that? I mean, in terms of the the universe of conspiracy theories, I mean that that's an existing one, right? That that's anti-vaxxers yes. has been a phenomenon in the United States and, and and elsewhere for quite a long time. And here in Sweden, you know, we did yes. actually have a, a vaccine incident about ten or twelve years ago, I guess it was yes. with with swine flu when people, uh, quite a few people, I think was it six hundred people, got narcolepsy from from the vaccine. Yes. So there is, you know, it is not completely preposterous to think that vaccines could have side effects. So um, where where does that what does that fall into the conspiracy theory universe? Yeah, I mean, it, it all depends. It's, it is again, of course, completely illegitimate to to ask for uh, evidence that vaccines are effective and 
and have uh, as little side effects as possible. But then uh, there is a, a scale and on the camp of anti-vaxxers that goes from sound skepticism to uh, religiously motivated uh, rejection, uh, where it is about to, uh, to say that uh, God has decided upon my and my children's life, I'm not going to interfere in, into it. So the, the hardliners would say I reject a vaccine because it goes against my religious belief. And then you have a more... Yeah, normally, but today also shared across the political spectrum, left-wing conspiracy theories about big pharma who intentionally make people sick in order to earn money by uh, yeah, either you know, producing uh, pharmaceuticals or vaccines. And in, in the current uh, COVID-19 scenario, all these different positions are kind of intermingling in the anti-vaccine uh, conspiracy theory. I guess but, COVID, but COVID-19 and everything around it really is the, the, the mother of all conspiracies, I guess. It has oh, yeah, so many great. different expressions, right? Yes, it's a great screen against which you can project all sorts of conspiracies, which leads me then to the last and, and the sixth area, which is about why does it happen right now? And then, of course, uh, you have two extremes in that field of conspiracy theory. One camp that says the pandemic does not even exist. It's just made up by the global elites to introduce a totalitarian world government. Um, whereas others can imagine that the uh, pandemic actually exists, but is very much uh, exaggerated, and uh, that the true uh, intention is to bring about this great reset, uh, which you might have heard about. The, the, the World Economic Forum had a conference last year in June called the Great Reset, and people say they are even revealing the true reason why they want to introduce the global dictatorship, because they want to reset economy and social life. And here they reveal that plan. Well, yes, uh, there is that dictum that a crisis should not be wasted, right? Crises are you know, moments of opportunity, right, where people can push forward certain agendas they have. It is almost like a cliche at this point that you should exploit crises to sort of further some sort of political agenda that you might have had from previous and the Great Reset, perhaps. For those of those uh, subscribing to that uh, conspiracy theory, perhaps that is how, how they interpret it. Uh, yeah, most certainly so. And, but then, of course, the unfortunate coincidence is that at Johns Hopkins University and in October 2019, hosted a panel where they uh, played through what would happen in the case of a large pandemic in the world. And uh, this is called Event 201. It's on Johns Hopkins University's uh, webpage. Uh, and if you look into the material that was produced in connection with Event 201, well, people who have a conspiratorial mindset say, here's the blueprint what played out only two months later. <laughs> so... And even more unfortunate is that the World Economic Forum and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were the sponsors of that event at Johns Hopkins University. So it's kind of, uh, you know, they find uh, th these dots between which you want to find connections is very easy in this case. You can bring together Event 201 with the Great Reset and then assume this all was planned because only two months later it played out exactly as they did in their scenario uh, workshop at Johns Hopkins. And, and the culprits are easily to be identified. It's a World Economic Forum. It's uh, Bill Gates. And then, of course, lurking behind the scenes is George Soros. Uh, and then uh, all the other forces that conspiracy theorists normally assume are 
directing uh, events on, on this world, Illuminati or alien lizards or whatever, the Vatican, uh, whoever you would like to uh, place blame on. I mean, in general, in the context of the, the COVID-19 uh, worldwide crisis, Andreas, uh, would you say that the majority of, of conspiracy theories come from the right, which is maybe some of the ones you had, the, the Soros, Bill Gates style ones that certainly are more associated with the right. But is there a sort of a, a sort of a, and also a sort of a, a group of left wing interpretations of COVID-19? And in some some cases, it seems like they are, they're kind of cross fertilizing with each other and kind of coming together, a unified front mm. uh, left and right on trying to, to make sense of, uh, of this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we are witnessing right now in Berlin and London, Holland, uh, Denmark, and the anti-corona movement has come to Sweden. So what we witness is that the right wing and uh, well, green left wing are kind of marching together, which has not happened before. So if you think about the G20 protests, where radicalized parts also are very into conspiracy theories about globalist bankers and so on, and uh, big companies you would not find a right-wing extremist such an occasion. And when we have the large demonstrations against the refugee politics in Europe in 2015, 2016, it was not, you would not find any left-wingers there either. So um, as a rule, there were exceptions because we have eco-fascism and we have a left-wing refugee criticism as well. But apart from these very few exceptions, you could say that very recent conspiratorial radical movements could be sorted pretty easy along the old scale of left and right. But now, as you might be aware of, we have this uh, way of conceptualizing political uh, ideologies more green alternative liberal on the one hand and traditional authority and nationalists on the other hand. And what we witness right now with COVID-19 is an ideological horseshoe where the extremes are closer to each other than ever before. And that is where they overlap and where they converge, where suddenly a person who does not believe in the existence of the Federal Republic of Germany can stand on the same scene as a person who believes that vaccines are an evil tool in the hands of the global elites in order to bring about the world government. And uh, that's quite fascinating because that ha- that has not happened before in that magnitude. What do you see as the sort of the medium and longer term implications of this? Uh, perhaps these these political strange bedfellows and the um, destruction of trust in authorities, which I think is happening in, in Sweden and other countries around the world. What do you see as sort of the longer term mm-hmm. implications in terms of how we see the world, how we assess facts, how we how we how we mm. look at science and other other aspects that, that are being undermined mm. by this sort of conspiratorial view of the pandemic. Yes, I, I think the, the the implications are that we need to uh, understand that uh, it is not only about source criticism and media and information competence, but it is more. So, because conspiracy theories convey a belief system. In, in Sweden, we we frequently think that uh, it is good that we are teaching our young generation, you know, source criticism. So source criticism is part of the Swedish curriculum in the schools uh, and literacy and so on, uh, media literacy and so on, which is, of course, is great. But the problem is if you meet a conspiracy theory, it is a belief system. And then you need to be able to unpack it as a belief system. And that means... It is a meaning-making narrative. It has traits of a classical myth, 
or mythology. It even goes into the area of, of religious imagination. So you need to also to be able to have these soft skills to understand that. And you need to understand psychologically why that is a very convincing thing to many people to listen to these to these narratives. So I think that is important that we move away from a simplified view that scientific thought and source criticism will be uh, the only way with which we can restore, so to speak, uh, the trust in in political institutions. And what that means is that uh, we cannot leave the area of meaning-making to those who are substituting meaning-making with conspiracy thinking. So meaning-making in our society is not only that we think about that it can restore people's trust in political parties and the state also through source criticism and more scientific thought, which I think is wishful thinking. It would be great if that would be enough. But we need to address the causes why people are embracing conspiracy theories as a mode of world explanation and sense-making today. Andreas Ernevarsch from Uppsala University, thank you very much for joining us here on the Corona Crisis Podcast. Great. Thank you.